Happy Thanksgiving. I kept calling it Thanksgiving in the first service, and somebody after the service said, did you mean to say that? Well, I really am thankful that we have a love day, don't you? So happy love day. Oh, boy, that went over well. You know, you know what that tells me? That tells me that half of you guys forgot that it's Valentine's Day, and you're really horsed up, man. You may, well, you have a few more hours left in the day, but, boy, you're really going to have to work hard to make it work. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Happy Thanksgiving. There you go. Thank you very much. It is Valentine's Day. Man, I just, and it's, and it's on a Sunday. We have Love Day on a Sunday. How many, raise your hand if you got married on Valentine's Day. Would you raise your hand? Anybody out here get married on Valentine's Day? Yeah, there, there's a couple right there. Yeah, upstairs. Yeah, yeah. In fact, my mom and dad and Fred and Levita, they, they got married 58 years ago in 1958 on Valentine's Day. Wow. Eric and Sherry got married on Valentine's Day. What a great day to get married, huh? If you're into that kind of stuff, I don't know. I don't know. Well, ladies, I want, to know, I, I want you to know that we love you, ladies. And if we didn't get you chocolate and roses, we still want you to know that we love you and we think you're special. Reminds me of these three men lost in the woods. They came upon this raging river. Uh, no way they could cross it. It was too wide, too deep, too rapid. First man looked up at God and said, God, please give me the strength to cross this river. And poof, all of a sudden he had massive arms and legs. He swam across the river. It took him two hours. Second man noticed this and looked up to God and said, God, please give me the strength and the tools to cross this river. And poof, God gave him a rowboat. And he rowed across and it took him 30 minutes. The third man got down on his knees and looked up to God and said, God, please give me the strength, the tools, and the intelligence to cross this river. And poof, God turned the man into a woman. She, listen, I'm not finished yet. She looked at a map, walked five minutes upstream, and crossed by way of a bridge. See, women are amazing. Reminds me of the woman who died and went to heaven. She was met at the pearly gates by St. Peter. And, and he said that before she could enter, she had to correctly spell a word. And she said, well, what word do you want me to spell? He said, doesn't matter. Just spell a word correctly. She said, well, it is Valentine's Day. I think I'll spell the word love. And so she spelled it correctly, L-O-V-E. He says, great, you're in. Come on in to heaven. Welcome. And he said, listen, I need to go run an errand right quick. Do you mind tending the gate while I'm gone? She freaked out and said, well, what do I do? He said, well, just what I did, same protocol. And she said, okay, I think I can handle that. Soon after that, her ex-husband shows up at the gate. She asked him, what are you doing here? He said, well, I just had a heart attack. Did I really make it to heaven? She said, not yet. She said, you've got to spell a word correctly. He said, well, what word? And she thought for a moment and said, Czechoslovakia. Ladies, we love you. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. What is 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter. Really, Paul is writing to a church who was divided over spiritual gifts. Some people in the church thought they were better than others in the church simply because of the gift that they had. Paul says in the last verse of chapter 12, 
I'm going to show you a more excellent way. In other words, I'm going to show you a better way. And in chapter 13, he gives us this more excellent way. It is the way of love. In fact, church, without true Christian love, these spiritual gifts do you or the church very little good. But you know what? This message is not just for the church. If this kind of love described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was expressed and experienced in every family, there would be a dramatic drop in divorces, in child abuse, and in dysfunctional families. I'm here to tell you if this kind of love were evidenced by every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ there would be a phenomenal revival that happened in our land as people were drawn to the love of Christ that we demonstrated in our own life. In fact, it's really interesting to me. Jesus said, by this one thing, the whole world will know that you are my followers by the love that you have one for another. So let's read about it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not going to read all 13 verses and deal with all, th I'm just going to deal with three verses. How's that sound? That's my thanksgiving gift to you. It's my love gift to you. Just three verses starting in verse 4. In fact, we're going to kind of cut right to the middle of the verse. He says in verse 4, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. Lord, I thank you for this great word that you've given to us. And I pray, Lord, as we talk about this kind of love today that comes from heaven, that we would not only learn about it, but we would begin practicing it. Speak this into our hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I preach from these three verses, what, what I'd like for you to imagine is that the Holy Spirit of God is up here on the stage and he's painting a portrait of love. And with every stroke of the brush, the picture that he's painting becomes more complete. In the original text that this passage occurs in, in the Greek, all of these descriptions of love are actually verbs. This kind of love is not just a feeling, and you know that from the song, it's more than a feeling, all right? It's not just a feeling, this is action. It is righteous involvement that we have in the lives of other people. And what we're going to do over the next 15 minutes is take a look at what love is not. Because that's what these three verses are all about. He gives a listing of eight characteristics of things that love is not. So guess how many little PowerPoints we have? And they're bullet points. Man, I know you're freaking out. He only usually preaches like three points. Eight of them? Oh, my lands. We'll never get to the restaurant today. No. I'm going to... Hey. Cowpoke, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw these out as bullet points. They're going to be as fast as I, I do cowboy action shooting. Well, maybe not quite that fast. But anyway, there's eight of them. And what I want you to do is take your, your bulletin on the back, and I want you to write these eight things that love is not down. Because you're going to reference it this next week. Because here's what I might do. I might call you. Like during the middle of the week and say, how you doing on the list of eight things that love is not? All right? 
So anyway, write them down and, and then refer to them this next week. Number one, love does not envy. That's what it says in verse 4. Love does not envy. Now, newer translations of the Bible put it like this. They say, love is not jealous. All right? There's a problem with that word because when we think of jealousy, we think of jealousy of one being possessive of another's affections. And, and sometimes we are told, you know, if you really love someone, we're not going to be possessive. But I'm here to tell you the fact is, when you really love someone, you don't want that person that you love sharing their affections with other people. Do you? I mean, am, am I communicating with you about this? I'll just use me for an example. My, my heart belongs to her right there, that pretty little lady on the front row. She is, she is my valentine, has been for years. This morning I gave her chocolates and roses and a kiss. I love my lady. I love her. I, yeah, you can applaud that. I'm, I mean, I love her. With all my heart, I love her. She is my valentine. I care about her. And I love it. I love it when Miss... And I'm standing way over here, not behind the sacred desk when I say... I love it when Miss Angie holds my hand. I love it when she puts her arm around me. Or Jason, I love it when she grabs my arm and says, Ooh, your muscles are big. Ooh. Boy, just, man. Mm. I love it when she kisses me. Now, I love it when Miss Angie does all those things to me because she's my sweetheart. I would not like it if she did that to somebody else. Are you with me? She can do that to me because I'm her man. I would get pretty upset if I saw her doing that to... Well, I'll tell you, no, I won't, I won't tell you what I'd do to you if I said, anyway. And I don't think I'm the only guy like that, am I? No. And you know what? We're not the only people who are like that. Because if we really feel that way about someone we love, we're just acting like God. Did you know that? Because he, loves, he doesn't want us sharing our affections with any other God. There's a, a verse found in Exodus 34, 14. You may not even know this verse is in the Bible. Let me read it to you. This is out of the New King James. It says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. That's what the Bible says. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So he doesn't want you flirting with any other gods. He doesn't want you sharing your affection and your love with any other god. I mean, that's just the way it is. So back over here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the new King James doesn't use the word jealous there. It uses the word envy. Love does not envy. It, it essentially means to covet something that somebody else possesses. And really one of the hardest battles a Christian has to fight is this battle against envy, coveting what someone else has, becoming jealous in that regard. Because you know what? There's always somebody who's a little bit better than you are. There's always somebody who can do something better than you. And we face the temptation to envy when somebody does something better than us. Really, the first reaction of the flesh is to wish that person ill. 
isn't it? Hmm? I found this out. It, it is sometimes easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Huh? Huh? And only Ronnie and I are laughing at that. The rest of you, you know, you understand it, don't you? Huh? You see, when love sees someone who is popular or successful or beautiful or talented, love is glad for them. It's never jealous or envious. You see, the love we're studying here in 1 Corinthians is, is a love that is satisfied in giving more than it is in receiving. Rather than resenting when others are blessed, this kind of love rejoices when others are blessed. And if you want a picture of this in the Word of God, go to the Old Testament and read that story about Jonathan and David and the kind of friendship that they had. Remember, Saul was the king, and God took the kingship away from Saul. You would think that his son Jonathan would be the next king, but not so. God anointed David to be the next king. Well, I'm here to tell you, that in and of itself would cause most of us to be jealous, to envy. But Jonathan wasn't like that. And then you add to the fact that David was better looking than Jonathan. David was more talented. He could play the harp. He was a more fierce warrior than Jonathan. You would really get the impression that, that Jonathan would wish ill on David. But again, that's not the case. He loved David. And I guarantee you, when you really love someone, you're never going to envy them. Number two, love does not parade itself. Some translations use the word boast there or brag there. The, the picture is uh, of someone who is a self-promoter. You know anybody like that? Huh? Someone who's always talking about themselves. They're talking about their success, their possessions, their achievements, their promotions. They, they just talk about them. They don't care about anybody. Just talking about them. I love the story about Muhammad Ali when he was getting on an airplane. The boxer was always notorious for his constant boasting. And, and as he took his seat, the, the attendant walked by and noticed that he didn't have his seat belt on. And so uh, he, he, she told Ali, she said, sir, would you please fasten your seat belt? And he, he rebuked her and he says, Superman don't need no seat belt. And she thought quickly and she said, and Superman don't need no airplane. Buckle up, buddy. I don't know, maybe some of the Corinthians were boasting about their spiritual gifts and bragging about the gift that they had. If so, they failed to remember that the word that was used here to describe spiritual gift is the Greek word charisma. Literally, it means a grace gift. Church, I'm here to tell you, if any good comes from your spiritual gift, it is due solely because of the grace of God. And there is no reason to go around parading that. The reason we parade around and just talk about ourselves is because of the third thing that Paul says love is not. He says love is not puffed up. There's nothing more anti-God than pride. Nothing more anti-God than pride. The word in the original language literally means to be puffed up. And that is exactly what pride does to us. It puffs us up. It makes us think that we are better than we really are and better than others. Have you ever looked at the word pride? What, what is the middle letter in pride? It's I. 
And nothing could be farther from the spirit of Christ than pride. You go back and study the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus constantly demonstrated love through acts of humility. When we are proud, we have an inflated view of who we are and who we think we are. Augustine, the great theologian, said it best when he said, Pride is the root sin. And by that he meant it is the root from which every other sin grows. And I think he's exactly right. In fact, we know that pride was the very first sin ever committed, and it happened in heaven when an angel got a little bit puffed up and a whole lot prideful and thought he could take over heaven. Pride is infatuation with our own image, our own importance, and our own reputation. When we are puffed up, we think we're better than everybody else. And therefore, everybody else needs to serve us. Because we're not going to humble ourselves and serve anyone. I read about a mother who several years ago took her teenage son to get his driver's license. It just so happened that that morning the only vehicle available for her to take was the old family pickup truck that had been in the family for years. is an old beat-up truck. Only two people could sit in the cab, but that's all they had. So she drove down to the bureau for him to take his test. She was, she was astonished and somewhat afraid when she learned that a parent had to drive along with the officer and her son. Now here she was in a dress. She had high heels on. She was all made up, ready to go to work after this. And, and there were only two seats in the pickup truck. One for her son to drive. The officer had to sit up front with her. So if this was going to happen, where in the world was she going to sit? In the bed of the truck. What was she to do? Here's what the mama said. I assume the position. Don't you love that? I assumed the position. I climbed into the back of the pickup truck and I did what I had to do. Mamas, don't you love that? Hmm? She went on to say, that's just what love does. I am not so important or so proud to do something that is undignified to help somebody that I love. And church, I'm here to tell you, that, that is what true love is. Love is not puffed up. Love is humble. Love is a servant's heart. Number four, love does not behave rudely. Some translations use the words act unbecomingly. You, you see, when people are puffed up, they're, they're many times rude, aren't they? The word here means to disrespect someone. And you know that rudeness is a basic act of disrespect. Let me tell you, we aren't rude to people we respect, are we? I mean, are y'all listening to me? You with me? We are not rude to people we respect. I mean, if we really respected someone, we, we would dare not be rude to them, would we? Rudeness is a crude insensitivity to the feelings of other people. And I'm saying, I'm seeing this kind of rudeness everywhere these days. And I feel like an old geezer when I say that. You know, and it's not just this generation. I'm sure people in the former generations have said the same thing. But, but it's true. We don't respect other people. There's disrespect for our law enforcement officers. Man, it, it, it makes me sick at my stomach. We disrespect those who give their lives to protect us. 
We don't respect our elders. We don't respect people in authority over us. I was at a basketball game the other night, and, uh, and honestly, I have to admit, the refereeing was pretty bad. I mean, it was, it was somewhat suspect. And, and there were a few fans who really became vocal, speaking down to the refs, and they, they were telling them what kind of job they thought they were doing. And, and finally, this one young guy, he got way out of hand. And I mean, he was, he was yelling at the top of his voice, telling this ref how sorry he thought he was. And he finally said, you're nothing but an idiot. And I mean, that gym just got real quiet. And that ref looked up at him, just kind of pointed at I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just me or what, but I wanted to go down and pick that kid up by the nap of the neck and slap him around a little bit. You know what? We might think that it's bad, but you don't talk to people that way. It's being disrespectful. And I guarantee you, if, if I really love someone, there is no way in the world I am going to disrespect them. But you know what? Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes Christians are the world's worst at this. I know a lot of people who, who work in restaurants as waiters and waitresses, and, and I've been told numerous times that they, they dread Sunday. They dread working Sunday more than any other day of the week because here's what they say. Church people are the rudest customers they have all week. I, I can remember going to a national convention. We have these every year for Free Will Baptist. Every summer we go to a city and we have our convention. There's usually between six and 10,000 Free Will Baptists that ascend on a city. And this year we're going to Kansas City, Missouri. A few years ago, Keith Burden, our national executive secretary, was giving a report. And he kind of chastised us a little bit. He said, we, we go and, and take all these uh, post-convention uh, 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 reviews and we talk to merchants and restaurants and we talk to people at the hotels. And he said, really, they're, they're kind of giving us a, a, a bad review every year. Especially at restaurants, he said that, uh, that every city we've been to, the, 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 the waiters and the waitresses complain that we're, we're very rude to them and we're awful tippers. And I, said, I thought to myself, well, that's pretty characteristic of Free Will Baptist. We are rude and we're misers. <laughs> but isn't that horrible? I mean, really is. It, it is an indictment against us. If anybody is to be joyful and happy and have a spirit of love, it should be us. I mean, I, I said this a while ago, but do you remember what Jesus said? By this one thing, the whole world will know that you are my followers. And it's not by the style of our hair or the kind of Bible we carry or what we look like on the outside, or the way we talk. He said, by this one thing, they'll know that you're my follower, by the love that you have in your heart. Here to tell you, love does not behave rudely. And I'm going I'm to bring this on down to the home. You know what? If, if there is disrespect given anywhere today, it's in the home. Men, you need to respect your wife. Show them respect. Show them love. Kind of reminds me of these three guys. They were bragging about, uh, you know, just recently got married. One guy married a girl from Alabama. He said, I, I told her right when we got, first got married, he said, here's what I demand of you. I want you to do all the cooking, all the house cleaning. He said, the first day I didn't see much done. Second day saw a little bit. But by the third day I had her straightened out and she was doing what I told her to do. Second guy married an Arkansas girl. He said, now here's what I demand of you. I, I demand that you do all the cooking, all the house cleaning, all the laundry. 
He said first day I didn't see much, second day was a little improvement, but again by the third day she, she was on track. Third guy married a Texas girl. He said, well, here's what I told my wife. You're going to do all the cleaning, all the cooking, all the housework, all the laundry, all the yard work. He said, first day I didn't see anything. Second day I didn't see anything. By the third day I could see a little bit out of my right eye. <laughs> Enough to make a little bit to eat, <laughs> to do some laundry and to call the landscaper, right? You know, how, how many Christian homes are characterized by this kind of rudeness, where we're just plain rude to each other? Kids are rude to their parents. Parents are rude to each other. Guys, it, it, it's not supposed to function that way. We respect one another because we love one another. Now, that's four of them. I have four more to go. Can you handle it? I mean, are you with me? All right, I'm going to shoot these a little faster. Number five, love is not self-seeking. It, it does not seek its own Verse 5, I understand that there is an inscription on a tombstone in a small English village which reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Right? Really, this may be the key to understanding everything Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. When I am not seeking my own, it means that I don't always have to have it my way. I'm not always demanding my rights. Really, you see, the evil, the root evil of fallen human nature is wanting things your own way. Huh? Linsky, the well-known Bible commentator, once said, You cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. But Paul has already chastised the Corinthians for doing this. And I would say to you, church, that, that most of the conflict that we find in church, most of it, 99.9%, most of the conflict you have in your home, and most of the conflict that we have in life is wrapped up in people demanding that everything go their way. My way or the highway. Well, to be self-seeking means that, that I put my agenda, my needs first. And you know what? Real love doesn't do that. Real love doesn't do that. And that's why I said in the first service, that's why I always tell Miss Angie, baby, anywhere you want to go eat, you pick the place. Anyway, that's an inside story, but jokes I can't tell you. About. Number six, are you with me? Love is not easily angered. That is, it's not provoked. This word is really close to the word patience. It means to be easily provoked to the point that we want to get even with someone or we want ill to happen to someone in return. Love guards against being irritated or upset or angered by things said or done from others. Again, just think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of, think of our God. How, how often have we provoked the Lord by our own disobedience? But God has suffered long with us. There's a word to describe that in the Bible. It's the long-suffering of God. And believe you me, I'm thankful for his long-suffering. God could have zapped us a long time ago. He's a holy, just, righteous God. He, just for one sin, he could have annihilated us. But he's long-suffering. 
His grace is awesome. He's slow to wrath. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Why, why can't we be more like God? Hmm. Love is not easily angered. Number seven, love keeps no record of wrongs. In the New King James it says, love thinks no evil. And then as a side note it said, it keeps no account of evil. It's a really colorful word that Paul uses here. It's from the world of accounting. It, it described a merchant entering something into a ledger so that it wouldn't be forgotten. And I got to thinking, do we do anything like that? And, and I think we do. If, you, if you've got a checkbook or, a, or an account at a bank, you do that. Your, your checkbook is a ledger. And when you enter something in there, like a, a debit or a check that you wrote or a deposit that you made, you write it down so you won't forget it. And that is great in personal financing, isn't it? But it's horrible. It's devastating. When you do that in personal relationships. Hmm. But it's so easy for us. It is so easy when we have been wronged or hurt by someone to enter that into the ledger of our heart so that we can hold it against them. Hmm? We want them to forever be in our debt. We want them to keep owing us. I think it's one way that we can minimize our own guilt as a constant reminder that someone else has sinned against us. And guys, we do it all the time. Husbands and wives are really bad about it. You get in a little tiff or an argument and you're, you're, you're bringing up junk that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. You're holding it against the person you're supposed to love. Once again, this ability to forgive like this is a quality that was exhibited by our Lord. Listen to Psalms 103, 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness. Well, praise God for that. Huh? Now guys, here's the deal. When we come to God truly repentant, okay, truly confessing our sins... Here's what the Bible says God will do. He will cleanse us and He will forgive us for all of our iniquities. He, he washes it away. God both forgives, and here's the cool thing, He forgets. God forgives and forgets. In fact, the Bible says He will cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, never to hold them against us again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. But here's the challenge, church. Having experienced that forgiveness, we are obligated to forgive others the same way. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. Remember, right in the middle of that, Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, for forgive those who sin against us as you have forgiven us. And guys, I'm here to tell you, when you keep a record of wrongs that have been done to you, when you keep this ledger in your heart and these names beside it, you will grow in your heart this root of bitterness that will literally consume you and turn you into a very sour person. So, learn how to forgive and don't think evil towards other people. And then, here's the number you've been waiting on. Okay? Number eight. Here it is, the last one. 
Love does not rejoice in evil. Verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Really, really, guys, when you, when you really love someone, you can never take delight in any evil that befalls them. But oh, how tempting it is to gloat when someone who has hurt us or offended us has something bad to happen to them. We say, oh, too bad for them. Really, this is one of the most subtle sins that can creep into our lives. But I'm here to tell you, real love doesn't do that. Real love rejoices in the truth. So there you have it. The eight things that love doesn't do. Now, at the beginning, I told you, let's just imagine that the Holy Spirit is painting this portrait up here. It's a picture of what love really is. And with, with every stroke of the brush, the, the picture becomes more complete. Remember me saying that? Well, he's, he's drawn that picture now. And really, when you step back and look at what the Holy Spirit has drawn, it's a picture of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is love. He, he is our example of love. That's the kind of love I need in my life. It's the kind of love I want to have. I want to have it for my wife, for my three kids, for my church, for my neighbors, for the world. That's the way I want to be. But I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm a little messed up. I know that. I can't do that on my own. I can't love like that. I've tried and I can't do it. I can't love the way Jesus loves in my own strength, and neither can you. Our human love is inadequate. It's fickle. But God's love, when it's living in me, will never fail. So that tells me two things. Number one, I need his love in my life. And the only way I can have his love is when I invite him to become my Lord and Savior. Here at Cavanaugh, we say that's pretty simple. It's as simple as A, B, C, A. Admit that you're a sinner. Guess what? You are. <laughs> B, believe that only Jesus can save you. He did that through dying on the cross and then coming out of the tomb on the third day. C, confess him not only as your Lord, but also confess your sins to him. And if you do that, he will forgive you. He will come into your life. He will transform you and change you. We've already learned in our study of the book of Acts, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's God living in us. And he gives us love. We now have the ability and the capability of loving the unlovable and responding like Jesus. So number one, I've got to have his love in me. Number two, it's something I need to work on. Balcony people, are you with me? Okay. I need to work on it. How about you people on the floor? You understand that? I need to work on it. Because it goes against my human nature to love like this. Everything in me is screaming, act like the world. Treat others the way they've treated you. So I've got to work on it. Some of us in this room have to work on it harder than others of us in this room. But we're all called to do it. Can you imagine? I'm about to shut up, but listen, can you imagine... What would happen if everybody loved this way? Divorce rate would go down. Child abuse would go down. Dysfunctional families would go away. And if we, 
as the church started loving this way, I'm here to tell you, we would have that revival because others would see the love of Jesus inside of us and they would want a little bit of what we have. Looking at some of us right now, I don't know why they'd want anything that we have. So let's pray for that love. Let's work on that love. And I think the best place to do that and the best time to do that is today on Valentine's Day. Right here at the altar. So would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? I'm going to pray and ask God to bless this time of prayer. If you need Jesus in your heart, come and receive the gift of salvation. If you need to come today and just ask God for help in loving people or, or maybe there's someone in your family that's lost and you want to pray for them or maybe you've just got problems in your life that you need help solving, come and bring them before the Lord today. He loves you and He wants to help you. Heavenly Father, please bless this time of prayer. I pray that you'd make it easy for my friends to, to be able to come right now and humble themselves before you and pray. Lord Jesus, I, I love you. Love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may the Holy Spirit have freedom right now to draw people to yourself. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the praise team sings, why don't you come, would you? Step out right now. Receive his love today. Would you come?